morning. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to have you all with us today. Uh, today starts a brand new series called Best Laid Plans, as Josh said. And um, have you ever had something in your life, or maybe a good portion of your life, not go according to plans? Have you ever had those moments, like the, the, the life you're living right now, where the mode that you're in, the season that you're in, is not quite what you envisioned? Or have you ever had those times where you kind of just sit back and you look at your life and you go, wow, this is life. You ever have that moment? I have those moments once in a while now when now that I'm, I'm, I'm a dad and my kids are getting older, I've, I've had multiple times this last year where I've sat back, I've been sitting in the yard and the kids are playing. And there's a sweetness to kids playing, isn't there? Hear the, the, the chatter of kids, the laughter of kids, the giggle. Man, I have got some pretty small kids right now that have an infectious giggle that you just love to hear from the other room. I sat back and I went, wow, this is life. On the flip side, I've also had some moments where, um, moments of tragedy. I remember driving away from my parents' house the day my dad passed suddenly. And it's like this surreal moment going, wow, like, did that just happen? Is this really life? where the plans get shifted and changed in a sudden, and all in one single moment, plans can change. Well, this series is a little bit deeper than that. This series is really about God's plans, God's design, that we have this creator, ultimate creator, ultimate designer in God Almighty who has beautiful plans for you, but for all of mankind. He has plans and, and specific will and purpose laid out in the scriptures, and he's called mankind to adhere to his plans, to his design. And how many of you know when you look around culture and you look around society, you look around our world, and it constantly seems like our culture and this world is rebelling, warring against the designs of God. We're going to look at some of those things over the, la over the next couple of weeks in this short mini-series, this break that we're taking here from the Gospel of John, but we have an ultimate designer in our God. And we are part of his creation, a part of that design. We must understand and know and cherish his plans to understand his design, to understand his will so that we might thrive, but ultimately have eternal life. There's so many times where we're sitting in a service and we're sitting in a sermon or we're listening to scripture and we can get really now focused, really here focused, really about this world focused. But how many of you know that we are just sojourners? We're just passing through. This life is but a breath. It is but a blink. You blink too long and it is over. It is gone. But those in Christ Jesus, those who have placed their faith and their life in the hands of Jesus, there is a blessed hope that awaits us. That when we understand the will of God, when we understand the plans of God, when we understand the design of the great designer, it does afford us much in this life. It affords us much peace. We avoid lots of calamity and self-inflicted strife. 
But even deeper than that, bigger than that, we have a blessed hope of eternal life for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I praise God. And I praise God that we are a part of his church. Do you understand the sacred thing that is this gathering on Sunday mornings? Do you understand the sacredness of being called the church of God? What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Like I said, we're looking over uh, some scriptures. Today, we're going to kind of strip it back. We're going to go right back to the core of it all. Today starts the new series, Best Laid Plans. We're going to look at the beginning and why it's so hard to understand and receive God's good plans, God's will, God's design for us and for this world. Before we do that today, I'd like us to pray. So if you bow your heads with me, and I'm just going to pause for a moment, okay? Um, I'm not going to pray at all. I want you to pray in your own heart, your own mind. I've been doing this a lot with our kids at home, where it's not just like me feeding them a prayer and them just kind of like agreeing with me, sometimes letting their mind wander. But in this moment right here, I'm just going to be silent, and I want you to pray in your own heart, your own mind, whatever God would have for you in this service. Be active in this prayer right now, okay? You pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your spirit alive in your church, the spirit that you promised and that you sent to convict us, to comfort us, and God, to lead us to truth, to lead us to you, to lead us to the one who is truth. And so God, today in this service, in our hearts and in our minds, God, lead us to you. God, help us to shake off this world. Help us to obey you. Not to earn your love or to earn your favor like a, like a kid who wants to earn the respect and the favor of his dad. He tries to do the right thing so that his dad looks on him with favor. But God, not just in that regard, but as beautiful worship. Because we have been accepted by you. Because we are your children. That you're calling us to yourself. God, let us be beautiful, obedient worshipers. That the things that we do and the way that we obey will be done as beautiful worship unto you. So God, be glorified in us, your people, today. Change our hearts. Make us more like you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Like I said, today I want to get back to the core of it all. Back to um, the core of mankind, if you will. And it actually starts beyond this, okay? The heart and the core of sin. The heart of sin is really, I, I, I came across a phrase this week where simply in my own flesh and in my own sinful heart, I am sovereign. It's a dangerous statement, actually, if you think about it. But really, that's the heart of sin. That's the core of sin at the very center. And you see it in the heart of Satan. We don't have a specific account 
in Scripture of, of Satan and where he came from and how he fell. But what we do have is prophecy. Do you realize that? We've got a couple different sections of prophecy in Ezekiel and in uh, Isaiah. And specifically in those contexts, they are about horrible, wretched kings. The king of Tyre and the king of Babylon. And it is widely thought in biblical scholarship that these two prophecies aren't just talking about an earthly, wicked king, but that they are pointing to the ruler of this age, Satan himself. And so I want to look at these two passages of Scripture today so that maybe we can get down to the heart of sin and to our own fleshly wickedness and why it is so hard for us to follow the design of the designer. So Ezekiel chapter 28, if you have your Bible, you want to turn there. We're going to look at just four verses, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Ezekiel 28, 12 says this. This is describing Satan himself. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. 14 says, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. You see that description? The signet of perfection. You can see how magnificent and beautiful this guardian cherub was. Lucifer, this angel of lights, full of wisdom, it says, perfect in beauty, arrayed in precious stones and gold, likely the most beautiful of all of God's creation. But then you see verse 14, this anointed guardian cherub, verse 14 and 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. I'm going to flip over to Isaiah chapter 14. We have the, this other description, okay? So you see the splendor of this angel, of Lucifer. And now we have his fall. Rather, that he was cast down from heaven. The prophet Isaiah speaks specifically of the king of Babylon, but let's read this in light of our enemy. Verse 12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. If you're reading the King James, it actually says Lucifer there. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, okay, this is what he says. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Verse 15, but you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Do you notice all those I will statements made there? I will ascend. I will make myself like the most high. I will set my throne on high. It sounds like a two-year-old. I will. I will do it. I can. These pride statements. 
You see, we usually describe the heart of sin as simple pride, right? And I think that's right. But I believe we miss it because we don't understand just how evil and wicked pride is. We rattle off Psalms, right? It says, pride comes before what? Fall. Pride comes before the fall. Usually we think of some jerk in our office, right, who's haughty and arrogant. Maybe we think of some pastor who's maybe a little bit too full of himself. We see them fall from grace. We see them fall from their position. We see them fall whatever, and we go, oh, see, told you, pride, pride comes before the fall. But you see it in Satan himself, full of himself. I will make myself like the most high. You see, pride in its core leads us to a rebellion against the order, the plan, and the design of God. It leads to a heart and an attitude that I am the sovereign. That's how evil our pride is. Please don't make light of it. Please don't, don't, don't think of it as not um, as wicked as it is. It is downright demonic. Came across a pastor, actually uh, a pastor that I followed for years, but something he said over this last year I noticed, he said it quite a few times. It says, everything God designs, Satan tries to counterfeit. Everything God designs, Every plan, every design of God, Satan, the great liar, counterfeits. Even the name used in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, O day star. We know who the bright and morning star is, right? Some of you old school folks in here, there's an old song that I love uh, that, let's see, how does it go? All hail King Jesus, all hail Emmanuel, King of kings, Lord of lords. Bright morning star, right? It's from Revelation chapter 22. I miss some of those old songs, don't you? Nate? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Revelation chapter 2 calls him the bright morning star. But Satan, the copier, the counterfeiter, he twists and perverts the designs and plans of God, even tries to steal some of his splendor and his name. And not that his plans will prevail. We know that God's plans will ultimately prevail. But he counterfeits and copies and twists and perverts to deceive and entrap and enslave us, humanity, so that we too, like him, will rebel against the will, the plan, and the design of our creator, God. He's a deceiver. He's a counterfeit. He twists and warps the plans of God. And it starts with a familiar phrase in Genesis chapter 3. Before we look at Genesis chapter 3, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 15. We'll back up to the story here. So verse 15 says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God speaks to his creation. 
He speaks to his creation and he reveals his design in creation. And essentially he says this. If you look at it, he says, I have provided for you. I am your provider. All of these trees in this garden are yours to eat from, except that one. I, your creator, have provided everything you need in me. I have given you everything. Don't touch that one. It's his plan. It's his design. He speaks it to his creation, to Adam. We jump ahead to chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord had made. And the serpent speaks. He says to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan cast down because he is full of pride. I will ascend to heaven. I will make my throne. I will ascend above the stars. I will be like the Most High. And he goes to the woman. And sin enters the heart of man. How does it enter? How does Satan deceive the woman into rebelling against the plan and the design and the order, the instructions of their God and Creator? He twists and undermines what God said. He twists and undermines the words of God. He questions and causes Adam and Eve to question what he said, what his will was, what his plan is, what his design is, with that simple phrase that has so many implications, did God actually say? That simple phrase might be the most satanic words ever uttered. Did God actually say? The first words that Satan utters to humanity reveals his nature and rebellious heart, causing, calling into question the plan and will and the design of their creator. And Eve fell for it. And humanity has been falling for it ever since. In our culture, you see it. The world is deceived into rebelling against the design of God in so many areas. And we're going to talk about some of these over the next couple of weeks. But in particular, in recent decades, you see it around biblical manhood and womanhood, around family and sexuality, around church ecclesiology and church structure and order. I'm not going to bash or berate any particular community or subset that believes or promotes anti-biblical views on such issues, especially in the world, because they are lost and deceived. Their eyes are blinded by the God of this age. They're fooled. Fooled into thinking the same evil, prideful thought of, I will ascend to God, and I am sovereign. 
But our culture and our world is deceived. So what do we as the church do? We love. We pray. We care. We show kindness. We stand for truth and righteousness in hopes that by the working of the Holy Spirit, the world might see the truth of God's word, his plan, his will, his design that starts in Christ Jesus and ultimately come to faith in him. So a lot of times where we get caught up looking at the world and we get really frustrated and really mad and there's a sense uh, of, of righteous anger to some of what we're seeing in the world. I get it. I totally get it. Sinners sin, right? They love sin. We too used to love sin. Long for it. Love it. Now, hopefully, because we are new creations, we are new creatures, been born of the Spirit of God, my sin doesn't taste as sweet. It's kind of gross sometimes. Still stumble into it, still fall into it once in a while. But I don't long for it like I used to. And instead of just sitting back and just pointing fingers and yelling and screaming, understand that fish swim. Understand that birds fly. Understand that sinners are going to sin. And what we do is stand for truth, absolutely. But we love and care and show the kindness of Christ because ultimately the working out, the things they're doing, the acts of sin that they're doing, is only indicative of their rebellion towards the plan of God, starting in Jesus. Jesus is not the sovereign of their life. Some of you in this room, maybe Jesus isn't the sovereign, the Lord of your life. Today, I implore you, today, I ask of you, as the Holy Spirit enables you to respond and make Jesus the Lord of your life. Does anyone know my favorite passage of Scripture? At least, I, I don't even know if my wife knows. She probably does. There's some of you that know this passage of Scripture because I probably use it about once every three months, probably in some sort of sermon or something that I say. Ephesians chapter 2, first few verses are some of my favorite, at least, at least in this season of my life. You ever have that where it's like, this is my new favorite verse? And then like six months later, like, this is my new favorite verse. And then like, like it changes. I know. Because it's all good. It's all beautiful. It's all truth. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, right? Following culture. Following the prince of the power of the air. Following Satan himself. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This was us. This used to be us. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. Oh, love these two words. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved 
raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I was once following the world around me, caught up in the next cultural fad, the next cultural cause, following the God of this age. We're going to address some of these things over the next couple of weeks, like I said. But I want you to understand this. When you're looking around in our culture, the way that we stand for truth and the way that we address these things, what I'm most concerned about is the way that our culture infiltrates the church. Those who don't believe, I understand where they're coming from. But when I look around the church, I see in certain church circles, there's a desire to be culturally relevant and culturally sensitive a desire to be loving and tolerant, and unfortunately, then we, we lose our way sometimes. We start to appropriate cultural shifts and norms into the, idolat- excuse me, the ideology, the theology, and thus the ecclesiology of the church. Like in this generation, we're more enlightened, more woke to the timeless truths of God's words, that we know how to apply it best like it's never happened before. We know that all of this has happened before. It's been happening since the beginning of time. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. But unfortunately, we have churches and church leaders who all of a sudden, under the shifting sands of culture, they're looking at truths in Scripture that once seemed to be so concrete. They're looking at truths in Scripture that seem to be so plain and so clear, but now their eyes are cloudy and murky under the deception of the enemy. And unfortunately, you see them foolishly utter the same demonic words. Did God really say? When it's happening in the church, that should be a big deal when it's happening with denominations, when it's happening with church leaders, those who are leading God, supposed to be leading us towards the plan and design of God, but are in utter rebellion to what he actually said, it should fire us up. It should cause us to pray. It should cause cause us to hold fast and hold more diligently to the words of God because in the word of God, he has revealed his plans for us. Do you see how crafty our enemy is? Our creator, The great designer has a design. He's laid out that design, his will, his plan, all that is good and right and sacred. He's laid it out in the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures are God's revelation to us of who he is and his nature, his character, his attributes. 
but it's also his revelation to us about who we are. We don't get to make that up. We don't get to decide that for ourselves. Our great designer has a plan for us. From the first page to the last page, God's will is made known to us. And if the enemy of our soul, if the enemy of our soul can get us to doubt or think lightly of or rebel against his word, you'll doubt, think lightly of, and rebel against God. If you think about it, the person of God and the word of God are so closely intertwined. So much so, like, we're going through the book of John right now, right? The very first chapter, in the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. He was there in the beginning. So closely are his words and his nature so intertwined. To casually dismiss his word or to treat it lightly or flippantly is to treat God himself lightly and flippantly. To rebel against his word is to rebel against God, the sovereign designer. So, on our fall launch day, it's pretty good to be so encouraging, right? Sorry, I've been a little bit of a downer this morning. But I've got good news. The plan doesn't end with rebellion and death. Even if you go back to the beginning of the story, the rest of the story in Genesis, right? Sin enters the world, death enters with the world, and with it comes the curse. There's a curse to the serpent, there's a curse to the woman, there's a curse to the man. To the man, he says, you're going to toil. Life's going to be hard. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to work the ground. There's going to be thorns and thistles. You're going to work hard, sweat your brow, just to eat and get by. Anybody feel that some days? I don't know if there's a lot of farmers in the room, but just life is a toil sometimes, isn't it? To the woman, okay? Childbirth, pains are going to be multiplied. Multiplied. Eesh. Eesh. Your desires are going to be contrary to your husband, it says, and he will rule over you in verse 16 of chapter 3. But then he goes to the serpent, and he curses the serpent to be on his belly, and that there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman from then on. But then he starts to reveal the design. He said, the offspring of the woman will bruise. Some versions say, crush the head of the serpent. There's your good news. There's your good news. Lucifer, splendid angel of light, the most beautiful of all creation, who is so full of himself, pride, leading to being cast down from heaven, using that same, that same mentality, that same prideful mindset that you can be like God. Did God really say? He starts to twist and manipulate the words of God from that woman would come a man, the God-man Jesus, the one who put on flesh and dwelt among us. He would be the one who will bruise the head of the serpent, that will crush the head of the serpent, thus rendering sin and death powerless over his people. 
God has a great plan, a design for the redemption and salvation of his people right after they rebel against him. You see it in Genesis 3. God reveals that glimpse of the rest of his plan. And it makes me think, when I look at Ephesians chapter 2, right? We were once children of wrath, but then I think of what we just studied in John chapter 1. That Christ, that baby in a manger, humbly comes to give eternal life to all who would believe in him. John chapter 1 verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This culture doesn't know him. Came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. No longer children of wrath, following the God of this age, but children of God who were not born Not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Thanks be to God, his plan carries on. Salvation in life in Jesus. See, Jesus comes to this world, right? Christmas time, born in a manger, humbly. And he lives this life sinlessly. And I say it all the time. I don't want you to get trapped in the idea that uh, that Jesus' sinless life is just your example. That's, that's the goal, right? To live like Jesus, to be like Jesus. How many of you can't do it? Not enough hands, just so you know. I can't do it. If, if Jesus is in this life, is just my example to live by, what time is it now? Almost 11? By 11.15, I will be in despair. Because I can't do it. But his sinless life isn't just our goal. It's our righteousness. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you believe on him, his sinlessness, his sinless life becomes your covering, your righteousness. He goes to the cross and sheds his blood, that spotless lamb, right? John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who's taken away your sins. The blood shed, poured out, cleanses us. So when the father looks down to my rebellious heart, my flesh, when he looks down on me, he doesn't see a rebel He looks down on me because I put my faith in Jesus. He sees the covering of Christ. Clothed in his righteousness, washed whiter than snow. His resurrection. It's our hope of resurrection and eternal life. And this is the design of the designer for you. His plan for you that you would believe in Jesus the one who undoes the curse of sin and brings us back into relationship with the Father as dearly loved children. Children who by his Spirit's power can obey his words, can obey his plans, can follow his design and beautifully lived worship. As I invite the band to come, I'd like us to bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. I'm just going to ask you guys a couple questions, and I'll do this every so often, and not, not every time, not every Sunday for sure, but 
I'm going to ask you guys a couple questions this morning before we start to worship again. Maybe you're in this place. You know you've been running from God. Maybe this morning you feel the call of the Holy Spirit over your life. and You know you need to believe on Him. Maybe before, maybe it was just utter rebellion. Maybe you've just been out doing whatever you want to do. Partying, drinking, whatever. Whatever it might be. A life of debauchery. But maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's not just drinking and partying and drugs and all that dark, evil stuff. (laughs) Maybe you just said, I'm sovereign. I'm Lord of my own life. I'm the one who's in control. I hope you understand. I hope today, maybe just looking at some of these scriptures, you've seen just how evil that attitude is. God's design is for us to be beautifully dependent on him. Beautifully in relationship with him. And he ultimately is the one who is sovereign and in control. If you're in this place today and you acknowledge that you need to put your faith in Jesus or maybe just repent and turn back to him, I'd love to pray for you. Please look up and catch my eye. I'd love to pray for you today. And I'd love for you to have that moment of acknowledgement before God. There's nothing magical that I'm going to say or pray over you. This is a moment between you and God, but it is so right and important for us to make those acknowledgements once in a while. So if that if that's once in a while, if that's you in this place, just please look up and catch my eyes so I can include you in prayer. Thank you very much. Praise God. Awesome. Praise God. Father, I pray for my friends in this room today. Those that are making that declaration to put their faith and trust in you. And maybe, maybe they've been living their life for themselves, that they are God, they are sovereign, they are the one who is in control. And today, God, they relinquish control to you. They relinquish and submit to your plans. God, I pray that you would meet them right now your Holy Spirit, God, that they would find hope and joy and peace in you in this life, but God, that they would also know that they have an inheritance awaiting them as dearly loved children. Father, I pray that you would empower us to be your church. As we worship you now, as we lift up our voices to you now, God, that there would be glorious celebration because we belong to you. That you have a good and perfect design for us, your people, found in Jesus, revealed through scriptures. God, help us. Help us to follow your word. We love you, God. We thank you. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Let's stand. Let's worship together before we go today.